0: In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, Man, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy.
1: Not now. Not ever. I mean, (laughs) these comments are completely inappropriate.
0: I'm sure she's right.
1: But I ain't spending any time on it.
0: How pathetic.
1: You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves.
0: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. (laughs) Great to have us with you on this episode of Democracy Sausage Extra, produced by the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and the Australian Studies Institute, also at ANU. I'm Mark Kenny and I'm talking to a couple of DS faves today. In fact, it's tonight, really, as I record this, but early in the day for them. I speak of the multi-talented Elizabeth Ames and the uber-credentialed Bevan Shields, the man who took the principle of method acting into journalism and caught COVID while reporting on it. Elizabeth Ames is, of course, Chief Operating Officer at Atlanta. She's Chair of the Menzies Australia Institute and a Director of the Britain Australia Society. Welcome back, Elizabeth. Hi, Mark. It's great to be back. And Bevan Shields is the esteemed Europe Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age and a former Bureau Chief in the Fairfax Parliamentary Bureau in Canberra, where I worked also. So we worked together a few years ago. Both are in London. Welcome back to you, Bevan.
1: Hello, Mark. It's always good to have a reunion with you.
0: Indeed, it is. Now we've got some fairly serious stuff to talk about. I should put the uh, the listeners uh, in in the full frame of of the the context here. As I record this in Canberra, it's Wednesday evening. It's been a long and somewhat uh, tiring and somewhat traumatic day, in a sense, watching the um, the, the U.S. election play out. And uh, as anyone will know, that uh, as as we got to the end of Wednesday evening. Nothing was all that clear except for the fact that a whole lot of people had voted. Perhaps more people have voted than Donald Trump wants to have voted or fewer or whatever. There's going to be an argument about it in the courts. So uh, it's no clearer now than really it ever was. Um, And I guess both of you in London have been taking this in as well, although in even less sociable hours than it's been for us in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I was just talking to to you both before we came on air and... uh, Bevan, you've had about three hours sleep, and Elizabeth, you made a more sensible decision to actually just wait to, to get a, a bit more sleep and uh, and wait for the result, but uh, of course there is no result, so there it is. Well,
2: I remembered vividly last time, Mark, where I stayed up till three in the morning um, with some friends thinking we would be watching the election of the first female president um, and had a work meeting early the next morning, so at three, and thought, well... Hillary looks like she's probably ahead, so it's time to go to sleep because I've got this meeting at seven am, uh, and woke up three hours later to a telephone that was full of despair and yeah. <laughs> and agony from friends. So I thought, why do not I go to bed a bit earlier this time? And and if the phone's full of agony, at least I have have had a bit more sleep.
1: Although lack of sleep, uh, lack of sleep is an upside of working from home at the moment because you can uh, easily. Easily sneak in a little uh, nap if you need, uh, which you wouldn't be able to do in an office
0: that that's true you just you do what you have to do. I know that story <laughs> you sort of get these uh, stories filed uh, you know get them off and uh, met that deadline for the time being, and uh, you can just uh, quickly slink away for <laughs> for a little period of time and uh, and then come back and uh, see what's going on and get the next bit of work done. So, well, anyway, look, we'll come back to talk a bit more about the U.S. election, but there's something far more important than that that I want to kick off with here, and that is this puppy news that has um, happened in London. Now, Elizabeth, tell us about Walter. Uh,
2: so Walter is my brand-new puppy. He's a Columbus Spaniel. A Columbus and- Spaniel. Clumber Spaniel, they're quite uh, an unusual breed. They're actually the biggest of the Spaniels. So he's, you know, all good relationships are at compromise and he's the result of a compromise between me and my partner Chris whose uh, interpretive dancing has been talked about in this podcast before. Yes. Um, I was very keen to have a Spaniel having grown up with Cavalier King Charles Spaniels and Christopher said that he couldn't possibly have a dog that wasn't a sensible size. So we Googled, are there any very big Spaniels? And it turns out there are. Uh, there's the Clumber Spaniel. So he'll grow to about the size of a Labrador, um, but right now he's a very chunky eight kilo puppy who likes to chew all of our furniture, and he's particularly keen on the internet cord. So if I drop out halfway through this podcast, it's because Walter's had another go at the Virgin Broadband.
0: Well, I've seen the uh, the photos that you've put on Twitter of Walter, the Clumber Spaniel, and he looks like he looks like a. Um... As you say, what is he? Eight? Did you say eight kilos or so? But he looks like a, a, a fair brute uh, uh, in terms of weight. Uh, and uh, I don't know. The, the name Clumber doesn't. It's not a very pleasant word. It, sound, it sort of <laughs> puts puts in mind the idea that he's going to be sort of knocking things over and you know, sort of spilling drinks and and and, and all those sort of things. A bit cumbersome.
2: The the Kennel Club breed standard actually describes them as looking dopey and mournful, <laughs> and and being not being a particularly rapid dog. So, okay. poor, poor old Walter's got it a bit stacked against him, but he made his first and possibly last given the lockdown uh, trip to the pub last night, where he was a huge huge hit with the punters. So. Uh, i think he's going to have a happy a happy life here in north london
0: yeah i reckon that's terrific and uh and bev and i and and, and anyone listening i um encourage you to go on to uh elizabeth twitter and have a look at uh, the pictures of walter or we'll probably get a picture up on the on the um democracy sausage uh you know feed at some point uh, so that so that people can see this dog so yes, look. Uh, let's move on from from Walter because uh, it's um, it's just too funny. I know that when uh, when I had Vincent, uh, um, at first uh, my little uh, Schnauzer, Bevan, you uh, were very kind to uh, laugh along with all the cute little pictures that I kept bringing to work.
1: <laughs> Vincent was genuinely cute, so that was. Uh, that <laughs> no, no, Walter's cute.
0: cute. Walter's very cute. Walter's very cute. He, but he does look. Uh, he looks, yeah, cumbersome. If I can put it like that.
2: He's a, he's, he's, a, he's a chunky puppy. Yeah, he's chunky, yeah.
0: Now, you mentioned, Elizabeth, lockdown, and that's really what I suppose principally we're talking to you both about tonight, the situation with the uh, the COVID crisis that is making its uh, presence felt again in a dramatic way right across Europe and particularly in the UK. Now, my understanding is, and you can both correct me here if I'm wrong, but uh, the Parliament is actually legislating today I believe a um a, another month long lockdown that is to start I think from tonight your time is that correct
2: Yes that's that's correct so one of the um concessions that the Tory party rebels got from Boris Johnson earlier in the year was that he would have to come back to parliament and have any new restrictions voted on and what that has meant is this bizarre situation where we were all told on Saturday that the rates were out of control, the hospitals and the NHS was close to being overwhelmed under worst-case scenario, um, but that none of this would come into force until midnight on Thursday, which, of course, the confusion was does that mean sort of 12.01 on Thursday morning or does that mean sort of 11.59pm on Thursday night? Um, and, of course, we've we've now realised that means this evening our time to Wednesday, the end of Wednesday night UK time, to enable this parliamentary vote to happen this afternoon. So I think the debate is starting at about 1pm this afternoon and will go for three hours and then the vote will be held after that. It should pass because Labor and, and Keir Starmer's Labor Party have said that they will support the lockdown restrictions. But there is an interesting question about how many Tory MPs will rebel against the new restrictions uh, and the size of that rebellion will give Boris Johnson some indication of how difficult it's likely to be over the next couple of months with potentially rolling lockdowns and, and more votes coming before parliament
0: and bevan um boris johnson's made a big thing for a long time of saying there would be no second lockdown there wouldn't they wouldn't do it again uh, this isn't this has some different features to it but it's still a fairly dramatic curtailing of freedoms i think it may even have some curfew aspects to it at least in terms of um uh, you know um, hospitality uh, businesses and and the like uh, so what what are the politics around this
1: it's messy. Uh, in a way, he actually did leave the door open to this all the way along. He he has said, "I don't want to do this. It would be a disaster. It would be a misery." All of which was true. And people are people are going back to those comments and saying, "Oh, ha ha! Look at what you said. You know that was a that was a mistake." And I have some sympathy for him in that respect because I think what he was genuinely. I mean, it's true. No one wanted to do it. it Lockdowns are a misery, uh, but I think he was trying to get the message across to people that please comply with the current rules we have; otherwise, we have to go harder. So he did always reserve his right, but it is true that he definitely mocked the Labour opposition leader Keir Starmer when uh, he suggested that we needed a lockdown about a month ago. Um, so it's very tricky for him. the The problem for Boris now is that he's He's increasingly boxed in on a few sides. He's got he's got his own history on lockdowns. He's got, as Elizabeth said, a, a group of Tory MPs who don't like lockdowns. They don't want it, and they don't just they're not just opposed to it because of the economic ramifications of it. They're opposed to it because of the curtailing of freedoms that come with it, uh, which is quite interesting. And then he's also boxed in. On a on a compliance front, I think because it's a very the key thing is it's a very different dynamic here in the UK and Europe now to the first lockdown. In the first lockdown, everyone was so stunned by what was happening and and the the, the newness of it that no one really questioned it. it. It was just done. Everyone complied. Everyone went along with it and tried to tried to stamp the virus down, but. It's a different dynamic now. It's a lot. The, the public is a lot more polarised. There's a lot more debate about the science and the numbers and the balance between public health and the economy. There's a lot more awareness of the the, the side effects of a lockdown that aren't related to to, to just purely the virus. So it's really tricky. He's got less and less room to move. But uh, but ultimately, this thing is coming down to to deaths and hospitalizations as it as it did in the first case, and I think if if he keeps the argument about focused on the NHS, the health service, and deaths, then he will he will have a chance of bringing most of the country with him because people do love the the NHS, people like doctors and nurses, they don't want to see the hospitals overrun again, um, and if he can keep that that message going, then he's probably got a hope of, as I say, bringing the country with him. But, I mean, does anyone really, I mean, do these Tory MPs really think it is politically tolerable for the government to be presiding over 1,000 deaths a day by December 8th? I mean, is that really, that's just not, that just can't happen politically, even leaving aside the, the ethics and morality of that. And it would only get worse from there. In fact, there was a worst-case scenario that the government had prepared uh, over summer that was looking at winter. And it said that deaths would get to about 500 a day and would stay at 500 a day for every day, for 90 days. So every day over three months, deaths of at least 500 a day. And what has happened in this second wave is that it's come much earlier and with much more force than they had anticipated and now they're saying actually that worst case scenario is actually looking quite rosy compared to what we're facing if we don't do this month-long lockdown.
0: Those are staggering numbers.
2: The, the numbers are completely, completely staggering and they're likely underreported. Uh, because we had this change over the summer to only counting coronavirus deaths 28 days after a positive test, but of course we know that for some people they can linger in hospital for a very long time, being very unwell, and then sadly die. You know, six weeks, eight weeks, three months after the initial infection. So those deaths are not are not counted in that total either. Um, the thing I would raise, and and I think Bevan is completely right in terms of people. Wanting to protect the NHS, but there's a huge amount of frustration now in the community, and particularly amongst small business owners, restaurants, hairdressers, cafes who've done everything they were told to do, who've invested huge amounts of money to make their premises as COVID safe as possible, who are now being told they have to shut down again because there wasn't enough done by the government to prepare the NHS over the summer and to make yeah. sure there was that extra capacity. Yeah. And there also wasn't enough done by the government, to make sure that the rules were sensible and easy for people to follow. So hairdressers, I think, put out a report today saying they're probably only responsible for 0.05 of the R rate, uh, if that, and yet they're all being told they have to shut down. Uh, and there's a lot of frustration, particularly amongst small business owners, which in the UK, as in Australia and lots of other countries, are the backbone of Conservative Party votes.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's absolutely... Um... Amazing, really, to to compare the situation in Australia with the situation that we now see in Britain and in other parts of Europe, Belgium and and France and Spain and Italy and a number of others. Um, wh- what's the feeling about about Australia? Because I, I know there was a lot of um, there there were a lot of suggestions from people in London, for example. And I think both of you were were, were had, ex- had expressed um, you know some concern about just how how kind of rigorous and uncompromising the rules were in Australia. But, you know, Victoria's had now five days or six days in a row, whatever it is, of no deaths, no no new infections. We've had days of literally no new infections at all in, in Australia now, several of them in a row. It's really looking like one of the most spectacularly successful, at least effective anyway, pieces of public policy uh, that that any of us will see in our lifetimes, uh, whether it's sustainable or not's another matter. But the the contrast between that situation and what's happening in other places in the world, where it hasn't been so comprehensive, is that giving anyone pause for reconsideration of how to do this?
1: Uh, I was um, I was talking to a, a there's a really lovely uh, woman who owns a cafe around the corner from my house and. She was in tears about you know the, the idea of a second lockdown, and we started talking about Australia. And I thought, oh, I, you know, I might have to talk to her about what the what the go was, what had happened in Melbourne, and she knew all about it and was kind of uh, impressed. But it, it's almost the other; it's almost coming the other way. I mean, I'm just inundated with with friends and, and family and colleagues from Australia, sort of saying, "WTF is going on in in Europe? This is this is." This is staggering, but I think it's 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 important to make the obvious point that, that Europe and Australia, they're pursuing different strategies. Whether, whether they'll admit it or not in Australia, clearly the goal is to get rid of this thing, to stamp it out entirely. I mean, no one is suggesting that's feasible in Europe. It's not at all. Re- regardless of how effective lockdowns will be here, there is always going to be a a level of transmission in the community that will stay there until there's a vaccine and this thing you know eventually burns out if that's what what happens so i think that's the key point that no one in europe wants to get to zero no one thinks that's that's realistic but the question is what is that what is that level of sort of acceptability in the in the community and in the health system for you know infections and hospitalizations and and death. That that's the key question, and and clearly that line has been exceeded uh, in in a lot of countries. And 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 again, in fairness to to Johnson, it's not just as you say. It's not just the UK. This is happening in, in France. France is having a, an absolute shock at the moment. Um, uh, uh, even Germany, Germany was a real leader in the first wave. Uh, cases are starting to to take off there as well, and Italy, uh, which which had a, a much later start of the second wave, it was doing really well over September. Uh, it started to take off uh, again as well, and it's almost starting to get to a point where it's worse than the UK. So it's a it's it's a, it's, it's hard to compare to Australia. I mean, I like comparing to Australia in the sense of the, the numbers because when you say, for instance, there's going to be 1,000 deaths a day by uh, in the UK by early December, you know, then you can say, well, it just FYI, there haven't even been 1,000 deaths in Australia all year. I think they're meaningful comparisons just to put the scale of the problem in context.
2: And it's interesting as well that the I think the island factor is one that we haven't spoken as in uh, ISLAND, the fact that the UK or, you know, Great Britain is an island and hasn't had proper quarantine measures since the start of the pandemic, was very late to introduce them, opened up to almost all travel again over the summer, you know, had these sort of travel corridors that they opened and shut, but was very confusing and people didn't really obey the um, rules to isolate and quarantine when they got back from places which they were told to. And all of that quarantine has been at home. So as Australia saw at the beginning of the first wave, home quarantine wasn't very effective. People didn't obey it. They didn't actually stay home. They still went out into the community or they just popped to the shops. So I think one of the things where you could make a, a comparison between the UK and Australia is the fact that both of them have full control over their borders, that you have to come into the UK on a plane or a boat, and they haven't used that advantage at all in terms of their ability to control the pandemic. And that's been, I think, a huge failing on the, on the UK side and one that's quite a That is a, that's a, good,
1: that's a good point. You talk, Mark, about um, what a... What do people in the UK think of Australia? Uh, the people I've spoken to, unprompted, uh, are actually staggered that Australians are having such huge difficulty getting back into their own country. That's something that mm. uh, I've actually been surprised by. How many people are aware of that issue with the with the flight caps and what that means for being able to get on a, on a plane and get home? Uh, so, but you know yeah europe is naturally inclined towards open borders and ease of ease of travel so in a way that's not surprising but that has had cut through here just how severe australia has been on its border policy
0: let's take a very quick break and be back in just a moment
2: ready to pop the question Or find us at
1: policyforum.net slash podcasts.
0: Welcome back. Now we were talking about the difference between Australia and Europe uh, in particular in relation to the the you know, response, the policy response to this virus threat. Um, can I ask you both, has there was there over the summer, over the northern summer, um, any? sense of, um, of getting a bit blase about this though. I know there was a, a fair bit of travel. I know people were moving around a lot, a lot of discretionary travel, um, people going to the continent from the UK and so forth. Um, you say the nhs elizabeth you make the point that uh, i think it was you anyway made the point that uh the sufficient work wasn't done on on sort of uh, retooling the nhs to to be ready for um for a second wave so i'm just wondering was there sort of a sense both officially and in the community that the the worst had passed um and that the second wave has really come along and reinforced to everyone in a, in the worst possible way uh, no this threat hasn't gone away
2: I think so. I think there was this huge desire for people after some very strict lockdowns to enjoy the summer. It was thought that it was safer to be outdoors, which has been proven. You know, the rates did stay low over the summer. I um, ended up going to Italy for three weeks for a holiday um, when people wore masks indoors and you sort of sat distance. but people would, as they always do initially, sort of throng the piazza after dinner and there wasn't a huge amount of social distancing. Um and what's really interesting, actually, is it's been shown now through genetic testing of the source of the virus that the vast majority of the second wave infections came into the UK out of Spain. Uh, right. That was the case in the first wave as well. So there's this really interesting sort of double whammy where both times it's been the virus coming out of Spain into the UK and then spreading rapidly. Uh, and that's because Spain is obviously sort of magnet for cheap package holidays, for People in the UK they tend to go, they party, they spend the whole time on the beach, and then they'll go home uh, to to sort of cities, often in the sort of Midlands and the North, where you have much more cramped living conditions, and we know the virus can spread more quickly in those conditions. So, I think people got blase. The government was really desperate to try and save the travel industry and also save the sense of the summer. I think in Australia, you know, you've seen governments. Um, the Victorian Government, as well, really focused on making sure that Australians can enjoy a normal summer holiday, so I don't think it's just a European thing. I think you would see the same in Australia as well there's this real desire to enjoy the sunshine and get outdoors while you can. But we did get blase I remember on our last the last time I spoke to you. Um, one of the other guests was talking about how bad she thought the second wave would be, and that was before we'd really seen these numbers. And I thought she was being, frankly, a little bit alarmist. But um, she was she's been sadly proven uh, incredibly correct in terms of the worst case scenario being realised over here.
1: But fair enough that people were out and about in summer because they were fo- they were following the rules. The government set the rules. Travel was allowed. You were allowed to go to hotels. You were allowed to eating in restaurants there's a sort of a level of blame that feels is is being um uh thrown at people who are out and about over summer but by and large they were following the advice and guidance As, uh, like elizabeth i went to italy and with a few exceptions i was really impressed by how well everyone was behaving and how serious restaurants and cafes and bars were taking social distancing and and hygiene i think the the blame on complacency really lies with government. Governments were warning right from, back, from the first wave that there would be a second wave. And, yeah, sure, there was going to be a, a, there's a level of uncertainty about how big the second wave would be and when it might arrive. But no one really did. Everyone knew a second wave was coming. But test and trace systems across Europe, with a few exceptions like Germany, haven't haven't really kept up over summer, um, have have totally failed really uh, when the second wave has hit now in autumn. Um, and a, a, another good example is sort of the, the restrictions on the run. It, it was only earlier this, uh, sorry, last month that, that Boris Johnson and the government came up with this three-tier set of restrictions um, based on that they would impose on local areas depending on what the case numbers were. But that sort of all came from nowhere and that all was developed when cases were absolutely surging in the north of England. Like why wasn't that obvious sort of set of restrictions uh, ready to go? Everyone knew what they were. Businesses had advanced warning of what might be coming. Why wasn't that done over summer, you know? Like so I, I, I feel like there's a level of blame on the public here that that Yep, that's fine. Some people might not be complying with the rules, but overall it's really on the government to set the rules and to set the standards and to set the the messaging. And, and they've just, they've just, they've really struggled on so many levels. And I I wrote a piece for the Herald last week saying that it, it feels as though they're making the same mistake twice. The first, the first wave in the UK was so devastating. 60,000 people died in that first wave. There were clear lessons out of that about contact tracing, testing, uh, public messaging, uh, you know, timing of imposing restrictions, and, and all of that's really questionable in their response.
0: In yeah, well, I must say, uh, you know, just to sort of insert my own perspective here on this, it, I have, you know, it seems to people in Australia that uh, the the policy response by governments, and I completely take your point, Bevan, about uh, you know but there being an inappropriate level of blame directed at people. the The impression we've got looking at it from Australia is of this kind of amateurish approach, which. Is sort of begrudging every now and then some significant policy change is announced almost reluctantly, almost invariably a little after it should have been done if it was to be done at all. And in some sort of slightly piecemeal way, there have been genuine criticisms to make about, you know, the harshness of and, and the sort of uncompromising nature of the policy responses in Australia.
1: Yeah, but they the one, have been the one very thing clear though. about Australia, which has been great, is pr- with a few there's been a few wobbles, but mostly the national cabinet process has been great in that people know when cabinet is is coming up. There's an orderly process about what the decisions taken in national cabinet, how they're announced. it's it's clean, it's it's neat. Here it's an absolute dog's breakfast. So just to give you one example. Uh, on Friday night here, the papers were publishing their front pages for Saturday. Clearly, some of those papers had been briefed that a lockdown was going to be announced on Monday. That really came out of the blue, but it was very well informed. There was total confusion and chaos on that Friday night. Imagine being a small business owner on that Friday night, and the only way you learn about a lockdown that's coming is on Twitter or on front page that's yet to be published. Totally unacceptable. Then on Saturday, it, t- it got so much steam that Boris Johnson had to bring the announcement forward to Saturday. He had to announce it at Downing Street instead of in the House of Commons. An announcement was initially scheduled for four, then it was pushed back to five, then it didn't happen until about 6.30. It was just a total mess. Stuff is leaked to the press. It's really unedifying and, and really un unfair I think to, to the to, to business owners and workers who are copying the brunt of lockdowns uh, and also the this is one of the reasons why the MPs are also so aggravated about this whole thing they feel as though the whole process is messy they're being sidelined and it and it's sort of restriction by leak which is what seems to be happening at the moment
2: and even each of even ministers aren't fully briefed you know Michael my- Michael Gove who's meant to be one of the most senior ministers in this government went on the morning shows on Sunday and was asked point blank if they really, we really would come out of the second lockdown on the 2nd of December whether it would only last four weeks and he said no he couldn't guarantee it would only last four weeks which of course had the result of making everybody even more confused and worried and to give some sense of just how ludicrous the restrictions are and how quickly they change we were told that no one would be allowed to order takeaway alcohol from pubs. You could order takeaway food but not alcohol. They've now changed the rule to say you can order takeaway alcohol at pubs but you can't do it in person. You have to do it <laughs> in advance so you can do it online. You can do it by calling up. You can do it by sending a text and written into the legislation is that you can order takeaway alcohol from your pub by writing them a letter.
0: So
2: that's the sort of level of confusion and ridiculousness in some of these um, restrictions, you know, botanic gardens have to close, but gardens at stately homes are allowed to remain open. Wild swimming is allowed, so if you happen to live beside a river or you have a lake on your property, you can swim. But public bars, even open air ones, have to shut. So there is a real sense of confusion amongst the public, and there's, I think, that's where a lot of this sort of upset from from the public and from business owners, as Bevan said, and, and from the the MPs who need to legislate it, is coming from. Is that not only is the process itself shambolic? But the regulations don't seem to make sense. A lot of them seem to be much more about messaging rather than actual public health provisions uh, and thinking about where the virus would spread, which we know is much more in enclosed spaces and much more in private houses. So, that's where a lot of this confusion and, and, and sort of backlash is coming from.
0: And a lot of that messiness around messaging has been consistent right through this. Uh you've made this point before, Elizabeth. Sophia's made Sophia Gaston when she's been on has made this point. I think you have as well, Bevan. You know, some of the slogans that they've changed, some of the messages. There was confusion as as you were saying earlier about when this, uh, this lockdown would start, would it be Wednesday night or Thursday night? Um, you know, all the way through, it seems like, uh, the, the, the complexities that you've just been talking about, plus the, just the, the, the words that are meant to give them form have been. A source of great confusion. It's hardly instilled confidence. It doesn't surprise me that um, that you therefore have people on the backbench who are just saying, you know, what's going on? I don't like this. Uh, I'm philosophically opposed to it. I'm just reading from a BBC story here and. Uh, one of the MPs uh, is who's who's not named is quoted as saying, "Have we overreacted? Yes, I think we have. A draconian, onerous, and invasive set of rules and regulations now govern our very existence." Um, and. Uh, and another, in fact, that was I think that was Richard Drax who said that. Another one, Bob Seely has said lockdowns are a dubious tool. Uh, and they're increasingly sceptical. Um, they don't think they work, and that they'll just come out the other end uh, with the same problem. They just delay the inevitable. So you know, with that level of all of,
1: and all of, but all of that's true, Mark. All of that's true. That's
0: but it hardly right. instills that's confidence true, when I'd you're love hearing to that.
1: Ask those MPs when you know, people start to die in the thousands in their constituencies, what, what their answer is. They actually haven't come up with a better answer. Now so it's fine to it's fine to point at holes in, in lockdowns, but I, from from these MPs I'm actually yet to hear of a of an alternate response that they're proposing.
0: Yeah, something that actually works.
2: Maybe we'll get a response from Nigel Farage, who is, as we know, the permanent contrarian,
0: who and has decided
2: to relaunch a political party now called Reform UK, which is an anti-lockdown party, having achieved his aim of Brexit um, and made sure that the UK is going to leave the EU at the end of the year, which is probably a topic for another podcast. Yes. Um He's now he's now decided that his new political platform is going to be standing against lockdowns and standing against restrictions. So the Tories, as ever, continue to have this pressure on their sort of libertarian flank, um, really whipped up by Nigel Farage.
0: Yeah, and what, what does it do that – I was just going to say, what does it do for public messaging though when you've got the governing party and perhaps this is, um, you know, one of those things that just happens when you've got a political culture that – is of the nature that the UK has. But, you know, in terms of public confidence and public understanding of the rules, when you have so much open dissent from the backbench, from sometimes senior people within the parliamentary party calling into question the very basis of policy decisions.
1: Look, I, as a journalist, I... I <laughs> I like the I like the concept of, of MPs and backbenchers speaking their minds and, and not and not going with the party line. So I kind of I can't have my cake and eat it too. But I kind of I kind of like that. It's a it's a refreshing change compared to to what you see in in Canberra. But the 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 problem the problem is that this is this division, this polarization. It's here to stay for at least. Three or four months, at least. Uh, you know, all, all the experts are saying this second wave is going to last through to March, at least, the, the spring. And if you sort of, if your listeners can kind of imagine a, a graph on a piece of paper, you know, in that first wave, everyone recognises that huge spike upwards goes really steep and then hits its peak and then comes down relatively quickly after that. But it's a real, it's a real spiky kind of mountain what is going to happen now is that infections are going up but they're not going up quite as sharply and they probably won't hit the peak of that first wave but they'll still peak relatively high and it'll stay high for months so it'll be sort of more like a, a you know like an Uluru kind of shaped uh, uh, wave that lasts for longer and and ultimately probably you know may kill more people than the first wave but it's it's here to stay and that's that's a big difference to the first wave that first wave was deadly and devastating but it was it was relatively short and sharp in some ways but this one is going to last for months and you know it's been such a messy couple of weeks already it's sort of slightly slightly horrifying to think that this is going to go on for three or four months more
0: well especially if you're going to go into it with such sort of confusion such dissent around you know how it works Leaking it to some, or you know, seeding it to some papers and not others, and you know, the the, the sort of PR improvisation that you described before, Bev, and uh, it it strikes me that that in itself is a problem, and and it's unknown. I mean, I, my understanding was that it was going to be for a month, but you think it's going to extend right through the cold months do you?
1: Well, I think I th- I th- I think it'll be very difficult for them to extend it uh, much into December. It might it might. Go an extra couple of weeks, perhaps, but I, I
0: think
1: the, whether or not there are other lockdowns, I I don't know. But I just think this general state of crisis is going to be here for three or four months.
0: But you can't come out of lockdown. I mean, if there's a justification on the numbers to go into lockdown at the moment, you can't be in worse numbers and come out of it again, can you?
1: Well, they've been very careful in not actually saying what the what the threshold is to to come out of lockdown, which which I I don't like. I mean, I think you've got to give people a a target or a goal to to work towards if you want people to to get behind the effort. So I think the fact that they've not said what that threshold is actually gives them a lot of wiggle room to, to come out of lockdown even when we probably on a health front at least, probably it probably doesn't make sense.
2: They can also come out of formal lockdown and, and what might happen, I think, is that they'll extend it a couple of weeks beyond December and they'll be able to say, oh, we're lifting lockdown for Christmas. But what happens is that the entire country goes back into tier three restrictions, which was the sort of this idea of these three tiers, and tier three restrictions are not significantly different from a formal lockdown. You're still not allowed to socialise with other households. Clubs and bars and restaurants have to remain closed. The only difference, really, is that non-essential retail would reopen, which would enable some of those small businesses and those shops to get some of the Christmas trade ahead of uh, ahead of that date. But I think, even if it's not formally called lockdown, we will be in some kind of rolling restrictions until I agree with Kevin until at least the Easter
1: break.
0: Yeah. All right. We'll look. Um, uh, can
1: I just make one really quick point that we might not get to if I don't just jump in? Sorry. No. It's, absolutely. It just it's just about the. Um, The 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 governments around Europe, how they're responding to this um, in a financial sense. Um, So Boris Johnson has had to extend the furlough scheme, which is basically the government paying for up to eighty percent of an affected worker's wage. Um, But a lot of countries, a lot of nations in Europe, are pretty tapped out on the on the debt and deficit front, like Italy. Italy's uh, debt-to-GDP ratio is going to get up to about 160%. That was forecast to to get to that as a result of the first wave. I mean, God knows what it's going to be if they extend, have to shell out wow. huge, huge extra amounts of money for the second wave. So the, the other element here is that the capacity of, of governments to try and support workers and keep the economy going and support business owners, it's got... It's got a limit. It can't go on forever. I mean, in Australia, people get hung up about debt and deficit. Australia is is genuinely fine. They've got plenty of room to move. But there there are some countries in Europe that will not be able to shell out huge amounts of, of money forever.
0: But the European Central Bank helps out here. I mean, I know there was an apology made to Italy from uh, European Northern European economies for not actually... Uh, Putting more assistance into Italy in the earliest stages of this outbreak, you know, around the time when you were first there covering the early uh, outbreak in Italy, um, yeah. presumably there'll be central financing for member states that are that are struggling in that regard.
1: Well, they'll probably have to. There was a deal done where where borrowing borrowing would be distributed uh, across member nations and it would go towards those that, that need it most but there will probably have to be a, a revisiting of that um, about how the borrowing is structured and how much and how it's handed out if this second wave really really smashes economies and, and places like Spain and and Italy sort of reach the limits of, or close to the limits of what they can do to respond.
2: Although there might be a little bit more um, understanding given that as as we were talking about earlier, places that did well in the first wave like Germany and Austria are now really struggling with the second wave. So I wonder if the more even impact of the second wave across the continent might actually mean that there's more wiggle room and, and more understanding of the need to make sure that that economic support's available across countries.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Now, look, we're very very much close to the maximum amount of time that we should have been on here. Uh, So I'm very eager to just get a, a comment or two from you about the US election, as we were discussing right at the top, because it's just so stunning, really, that we have this situation. The world's largest, most powerful democracy has... As you were saying before, Bevan, it's you know, it's it's kind of fought itself to a standstill. This divided nation, it, you know, hundred and whatever it is million, hundred and 160 million people have voted, and it could be down to just a few, few thousand votes and uh, and a bunch of high court justices. The
1: strangest thing about what's happened tonight with Trump going out and effectively declaring victory and saying that a fraud's been perpetrated and this and that is that he didn't really need to like he still has a a good shot at actually winning this thing outright and legitimately uh so i just i'm just baffled why he has done that when to me the story of the election is just how poorly the the democrats have done and how well trump has sustained his vote he could have he could have got up on that stage and and i think rightly said Look, we're really in this. We may well win. You all wrote me off for months and years. Um, yeah, you know, ha ha. Look at look at how well we're doing. But he didn't. He didn't do that. And I just don't. I don't. I just don't get that. But look, you're, I'm, I'm sure European leaders are up uh, all night, like uh, like I was and Elizabeth was earlier. But uh, Europe is Europe had its fingers crossed for a, for a Joe Biden victory and a and a solid one at that. Europe. Wouldn't want these questions about the sort of the, the stability of a of American democracy and having a sitting president undermine that because Europe likes to likes to lecture other countries about these issues and uh, if if they're not prepared to do that uh, and and speak up when this is happening in the US it, <laughs> it does sort of undermine their message when they try to, to try to criticize other countries and other leaders that. Uh, respecting democracy.
0: It sure does. And I, and I agree with you on that point about uh, what what Trump could have said and and as you say we don't know what's going to happen in those other states. It maybe the Republicans have good intel about um, you know the just the proportion of those postal votes that are that are flowing against them and believe that it's it is, you know, it will drift out of their hands if they let all those people vote including many of them being Military people serving abroad who are overwhelmingly Republican supporters. So, it's it's really quite interesting. But Elizabeth, I wonder, do you think the Democrats went went with the wrong candidate? I mean, did they go with uh, did they go with you know the the sort of American Bill Shorten, almost uh, you know a, a candidate who was worthy but but just uninspiring and. Trump's obviously done the theater of this campaign extraordinarily well. I mean, people were criticizing it for a lack of strategy or a lack of a unifying narrative, or whatever. but in fact, what it was all about was a was what his TV show was all about ratings. It was about energy and the theater and the vaudeville and the you know and and it's drummed up this level of enthusiasm so that even though the Democrats may have done, okay in terms of getting out their vote, Trump's got out his vote as well. And there are more people, have, far more people have voted in this election than voted in the the 2016 poll, it seems. So I wonder, what, what's your assessment of, uh, of of whether the Dems went with the right candidate?
2: Yeah, I, I saw, a, um, I think it was a tweet this morning saying that it's the highest vote turnout in 100 years in the US, which is a sort of amazing statistic. I agree, Biden was just never the right candidate in terms of turning out the vote. It was very much a vote against Trump. And so we know Trump is a sort of huge electrifying figure on both sides. People are desperate to vote for him and people are desperate to vote against him. And the problem that the Democrats have had is they haven't had a positive narrative that's really a don't vote for Trump, look at what he's done, not a vote for Joe Biden, he's got a great idea, he can really make these differences and, and make a change for you. And we know that a lot of that um, vote for Trump is is motivated by these grievances, these feelings that people are being left out, that they're not being able to keep up, they're not being able to achieve the American dream, and to have a candidate on the Democratic side that's not able to articulate a Democratic, you know, that the American dream and not able to inspire people is is really challenging.
1: Who do you who do you reckon it should have been, Elizabeth?
2: I've, I've always been a huge Elizabeth Warren fan, but uh, I recognise that, that women in politics, particularly in the, in the US, face a, an uphill challenge in terms of um, the way in which the media cover them and the way in which people react to the idea of a, of a female president. Um, I also think that one of the big stories that's going to come out of this is the importance of the ground game. We know that in the sort of surprise Australian electoral victory that actually the Liberal um, and National parties had a much better ground game than the Labor Party had had and they'd really worked on that. And it's going to be the same in the US election. So because Democrats have been much better about abiding by COVID regulations, not meeting in person, not holding rallies, not doing door knocking, not putting people at risk, they actually didn't go and turn out their voters. And if you look particularly, I think, at the result in Florida, where you had a huge influx of Trump people knocking on doors, encouraging people to vote, making sure they voted early, making sure they turned out their base, that may well be the difference in some of these swing states is the fact that the Republicans were prepared to door knock despite the risks in the pandemic, and the Democrats played it safe and abided by health regulations but that in the end is possible in terms of the electoral
0: advantage. No question that that's right, although that's why Trump is so worried, of course, because the Democrats' strategy was to get people out to vote via postal voting Um, and that's why there's this uh, very strong return in favour of the Democrats in those postal votes. That's why Trump is very concerned about not seeing or limiting the number of those that eventually get counted so yes, it's um, it's really extraordinary. I, I I don't know. Maybe maybe Kamala Harris was uh, was the better choice, but uh, of course she didn't do so well in the in the primaries and 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 sort of crashed out rather early. So you know who who can say? But it, it is rather staggering to think that in a country of three hundred and thirty million people, the best they could come up with is one guy who's seventy four, one guy who's seventy eight. It would be by the time he uh, gets sworn in, and and I think what Trump did is he did almost like an interpretive dance on the on the vulnerability of of Joe Biden. I mean, he he everything that every single piece of Trump's sort of body language and the campaign's body language, which was of course COVID irresponsible in so many ways, but. But so it, it didn't matter apparently to voters. It, it said energy. It said activity. I mean, Trump doing three, four, five rallies in a day, and and Joe going to these kind of lame drive-in things where honk if you don't like what's the direction America's going in or whatever. It just it it just felt terrible. And then when you see um, when you see um, Biden talking, you know he he. You know, he looked old. I'm not saying that I'm against old people or whatever, but he just looked like a man whose best days were beyond him. And he was even, even his, even the comments that he's made since the election. You know, he reads every line. He, there's no spark. You know, the, the contrast between him and Trump, uh, I think, was a contrast that Trump exploited very successfully to subliminally get that message across about. You know Trump being fit and strong and ready to go. He's even beaten COVID, you know all that sort of stuff. He turned everything that was a negative into a positive, or at least tried to. And uh, Biden, on the other hand, looked kind of supine and and um, and safe and all that. There's you know a lot of good arguments for that, but in a campaign sense, it doesn't seem to have resonated with voters.
2: I think there'll be a huge post mortem on uh, on the Biden campaign about why it is they didn't feel they could do at least more sort of safe public events, why he didn't make more appearances, why their comms were so lacklustre and whether that was coming from the top and a lack of enthusiasm from the candidate and around the candidate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, that's all we've got time for. It's been absolutely terrific having you both from London for Democracy Sausage Extra, Elizabeth Ames and Bevan Shields. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's, it's been really terrific. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon. And we'll, I guess, um, you know, some, some people when they're listening to this will probably know the uh, way some of these things panned out, particularly, uh, the, the US election. Um, it may take days, may take even longer, depending on how much of it ends up in the courts and how long it takes to count in places like Pennsylvania. But, um, uh, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary political moment and we're right in the middle of it and uh, thanks so much. Hopefully for... we have
1: a result by the next time we speak,
0: Mark. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, let's look forward to that. Thanks to both of you and uh, thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage. See you again soon.